two of the most prayed for women in the world at that time, and they just could not iron it out. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keefley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Lucy S.R. Austin about her new biography of Elizabeth Elliot. And after that, we'll have our segment, On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment we call Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, such as news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. In today's edition of Headlines, we want to talk about one of my favorites, sports, specifically the conference realignment. Fellas, I am more than happy to let you have this conversation. <laughs> okay. Dr. Keithley is so disappointed with how the Cardinals have performed over the summer. He doesn't even want to talk about football season. It, but is, it is a grief. It is a grief. <laughs> a grief observed. <laughs> All right, Nathaniel, uh, let me turn the tables on you a little bit. Ordinarily, you would ask me these questions, but you're the Georgia fan. You've won two college championships in a row. All these things None are of us true. really care that much. Um, but in any case, tell us about what's going on with, when we, when we say conference realignment, just, just give us the dummy version. What do we mean? All right. So when we think about conference realignment, what we're talking about is athletic conferences. So you're an Alabama fan. I'm a Georgia fan. We are in the Southeastern Conference, a group of schools that work together and all their teams kind of play each other uh, in in all the various sports. And have historically been organized geographically. Absolutely. Historically been organized geographically. You've got the Southeastern Conference. You've got the Big Ten. You've got the the ACC, the Pac-12. There's all kinds of conferences all around the country. And these have historically been kind of geographically uh, bound. Well, over the last few years, that's begun to change a little bit. And mm-hmm. we, we can chart this back maybe even a decade or more when uh, schools like Texas A&M and Missouri joined the Southeastern Conference. And people started thinking, now, hold up, Missouri doesn't feel like the Southeast. Mm-hmm. But we all yeah. just went with it, right? Well, the last few years, things have really amped up. Texas and Oklahoma have announced that they're going to join the SEC, which was big news that sent ripples throughout the college football landscape. Uh, and just I'm going to just list a bunch of schools and where they're going. USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington are all leaving the Pac-12, which was traditionally a kind of a West Coast conference, to go join the Big Ten, which is kind of a Midwest conference. Yeah. Uh, and so it doesn't really make sense geographically. Naturally, just scratching the surface. There's a lot of other teams leaving the Pac-12, going to the Big 12, or just a lot of movement about all these conferences moving around. So what? give me the so what about this. So one obvious so what is, okay, so the conferences are not geographical anymore, but what is it that's becoming kind of the organizing principle of these groups? You know, there's a lot of questions about that. Uh, I, I want to quote UCLA basketball coach. UCLA is one of those schools that is leaving their conference to go join a different conference, a bigger conference. The coach's name is Mick Cronin, and he told uh, reporters recently, it was reported on Fox News, he said this all happened because of money. Quote, that's just the reality. It's not all because of football. It's because expenses and bills have grown. That's the reality of it. And what I would tell you is this is not the end of all fix. It's far from over. So this coach 
is kind of realizing, hey, this is all about the bottom dollar, about TV contracts, about mm -hmm. who has the biggest media rights, how that money from TV kind of funnels down to these schools. So let me cut to the chase on some of this. We, we've talked a fair bit in the last year or so about actually the value of sport. There's much virtue related to that. We had a fun conversation with Jeremy Treat last year about kind of a theology of sport. He wrote a, a popular article about that. So I want to just acknowledge that dimension of this conversation, set it to the side for a second, and then come back and just ask you now, is there is there not virtue in this discussion, but more vice? If, if money's at the bottom of this, what are we losing? And what is it teaching us about, especially challenges to the human being? Well, let me just put it this way. I mean, obviously, it's a good thing for athletic departments to have more money. You would think, I mean, we would, we would assume this would trickle down to student athletes in some way or another. And we have to realize it's a unique time for college athletics. Uh, you know, now for the first time, college athletes can make a uh, profit off their name, image, and likeness. Yeah. So if you're really good at football, you can actually... Too bad theologians can't do that. I'm <laughs> no. just... Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> for the first time, if you're a really good college football player and you sign uh, an autograph for someone, they can give you, you know, money, compensation for that. It used to be uh, taboo right, right. in college sports, for better or worse. That, that's the reality now. And so that I wonder if that's having some effect on this. So in some sense, it's good that athletic departments are getting more money to the extent that they can trickle down to the student athletes. On the other hand, for the average student athlete, I think this conference realignment has more negatives than positives. For example... If you are a lacrosse player at Maryland uh, and you have a competition uh, there with another school in your conference, well, guess what? Oregon's now in your conference. Mm, yeah. And so you're going to have to travel all the way across the country for a lacrosse game. It seems a little excessive, right? So for football and the matchups for football, this makes sense, or maybe even basketball. When it comes to some of these other sports, it doesn't seem like it's actually good for the average student athlete if they are really a student. I mean, if this is the goal is for them to be in college and get education, it doesn't seem really good. It also, I think, seems bad for the sport as a whole. And this, maybe this is the old-timer curmudgeon and me kind of coming out here. But what makes college sports great, I think, are, are the traditions, the great traditions that make uh, these teams, these communities meaningful in the first place. So, for example, I mean, I, this is no secret. We have joked about this for a long time. I'm a Georgia fan. I grew up around Athens, Georgia. And what makes being a, a fan of University of Georgia special for me is not really the, the wins and losses. I mean, that's fun. It's great. But it's about the community. It's mm -hmm. about uh, growing up in a place that embraced this sport. And you would go to Sonny's on a Friday night and see old pictures of Larry Munson on the wall or, or uh, uh, Herschel Walker pictures and autographs and stuff. Like there's this sense of community and camaraderie that, these, that forms these communities because of these sports. And, and there's this sense of rivalry, mm -hmm. all right? We've talked about rivalry before on here where, uh, where one school and another school, there's this fun little tension. Most of the time it's playful, right, between these schools. And, and there's these traditions that make this sport unique and special. And the conference realignment has the potential, not necessarily, but it could, to begin to strip away those traditions for the sake of the dollar bill. For example, there's some schools, I mean, I'm thinking – uh, if Oregon's going to play in the in the Big Ten, all right, there's Oregon State. That's their traditional rival. How long are they going to be able to play yeah. their rivalry games? Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's stripping away these things that make these sports unique and different from like the National Football League. And what ends up what I, I could see end up happening is where this essentially becomes just minor league football, mm. uh, and that makes it less interesting, right? Because it's less about the community, more about television ratings. So, and I think in general, this is also just a symptom of a broader problem that we in our culture see, think about challenges to humanity. 
we see this continually again and again, this loss of local community, mm. where a lot of times we don't know the people that live across the road from us. We don't know the people in our own town, but we know random stranger on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Like we, we have more social connection digitally than locally in our own communities. I think this is just a bigger symptom of that. Um, where the, as we lose local community, community becomes just a, a, a consumable media product. And so we see this on social media. We see this in churches. I mean, I, I'm a pastor. You're a pastor. Uh, I'm involved in a local association of churches in a community that worked and do ministry together. A lot of churches don't have time or space for that. They want to be, for better or worse, you know, involved in an association of churches that are a little more uh, interest-based than they are geographic base. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense yeah. of we're losing this love for our own community uh, and, and more focused on these other things. So we see this in all facets of our culture. And I think this is just one symptom of that greater loss of local community. Maybe I'm overselling it here, but I think there's something bigger going on. Do you think that allowing for this kind of what's really becoming these super conferences in this conference realignment, is it is it allowing the money to overshadow the game as well as the very purpose of university? That's always a possibility. Let's be honest. College football has always been a little bit about money. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. This is not. A I new mean, thing. this is not a new thing, right? Uh, University of Alabama uh, is going to make lots of money off of people who buy tickets to go to the game. It's always been about money, but you know, as this creeps and gets larger and larger yeah. and more about TV. I mean, like as we think about the ratio of what percentage of this is 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 academic versus what percentage of this is a business. The business ratio is clearly growing, and yeah. we can't. Uh, ignore that. Yeah. So what do we gain in this? So some some might say, hey, look, I hear the curmudgeon side of this. We may lose some traditions, but young blood might say, but we need new traditions. So does this create an opportunity for some some new rivalry rivalries, some new stories to be told, some some new traditions that we might celebrate and even form communities around going forward? Absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely the case. That could very well be the case. Uh, traditions are, are are the way they are because someone years ago decided to start them. That could be the case for sure. Uh, but I, Perhaps um, in this quick move to, to grab the TV money while it's there, um, in the loss of the identity of the sport, that's kind of the fear. You're losing mm-hmm. the identity of the sport. And so it becomes almost unrecognizable. Yeah. And so maybe, you know, it'd be fun to see um, USC play, I don't know, Nebraska on a regular basis. But after a while, it's just the new tradition, and it doesn't make any geographic sense. It doesn't make anything else. That's the fear, and that in the stripping away of all these things, it becomes something unrecognizable uh, that was really only made to be a TV product, and, um, and it's lost its identity a little bit. All right, let's get your forecast. What are we looking at by the time we get to January? Who's in, who's in the last – who the last four, maybe last two standing in college football? Probably the best teams will be the ones uh, last standing, and the ones that aren't as good will, will be, uh, you know, I uh, – there's a and, and inner, as a Georgia fan, uh, I know we've won two in a row. There's always in the back of my mind like we're probably not as good as I think we are. So uh, for your sake, I'm going to say Alabama over Ohio State in the national championship. Really, Alabama over Ohio State in the national championship. Over, I just throw this out there. I, I could change my mind in 13 minutes, but uh, that, that's where I'm going to right now. Okay, yeah, sounds good. I'm not going to say that. I'm going <laughs> to say Georgia. Georgia's the team to be. As bad as as bad as it hurts me to say that, Georgia's the team to be. We're probably looking at. Something like could be a Georgia, Ohio State. It could be. Um, I don't know. We'll see. It'll be a fun time. Dr. Keithley, any final prognostications on the college football season? I, I am completely um, <laughs> uninformed in this area. I, you know, from the Midwest, uh, Missouri has always been an also ran, and so 
it you know that's why I've, I've, I've I, through the years I've been a Cardinals fan, but this year they have let us down. But has there been a silver lining in the fact that the Yankees might have their first losing season in thirty years? That's always it's <laughs> always, always a silver, a silver line. line. Yes. And we've made everybody angry. Yes, so. you have. <laughs> yes, you have. Well, with that, please do still give us a five-star rating. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. In the past century, few evangelical women have been more influential than Elizabeth Elliot. Lucy S.R. Austin has written a new biography called Elizabeth Elliot, A Life, and we're delighted to have her on the podcast today. Lucy is a writer, editor, and teacher who has spent over a decade studying source materials on Elizabeth Elliot. She has served on the editorial staff of the Spring Hill Review, contributed to various publications, and developed two high school English textbooks on prominent Christian authors. S.R. Austin lives in the beautiful Pacific Northwest with her husband and children. Lucy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I suspect most of our listeners will be familiar with uh, Elizabeth Elliot, but for those who don't know, uh, who is Elizabeth Elliot? Elizabeth Elliot was a missionary uh, who became very widely known in the 1950s when her husband and four of their friends were killed making contact with an isolated people group in rural Ecuador who very carefully guarded the borders of their territory. And their story really captured public attention in the U.S. because it was 1956, we were in the space race, and here were these modern American men who uh, were killed with warriors using spears. That contrast, I think, captured people's attention. And Life Magazine and Reader's Digest picked up the story. And of course, they had a, a huge readership at that time, like 75% of American adults. Um, so it was a widely known story. And then about two years later, there was a new story in Life Magazine, which was that Elizabeth Elliot had taken her little daughter and um, gone to live with the people who had killed her husband, um, which again was just a striking story of either courage or hubris, depending on who you asked, uh, and then, of course, forgiveness. And so Elliot was approached by a publisher uh, and asked to write a book about her husband and their friend's um, death and mission, which she did, and then a biography of her husband, and then subsequently a book about her life with the Werani, the people group that he had been trying to reach. So when she decided to move back to the United States uh, and work as a writer, she had a, also a public speaking career that kind of took off without her even meaning for it to because of the great interest in her story. And so she spent the rest of her life um, working as a writer and a speaker and her teaching um, had a very large impact on evangelical American Christianity. Yeah, I, as I could remember, I was I was born in the 1950s and grew up in the 1960s and heard this story. I guess I had forgotten just how big of a story it actually was. At a time when there were about 160 million Americans, I read somewhere in your book that something like 75 to 76 million adults 
read her story about what happened to her husband along with the others, such as Nate Saint. So it was an extraordinary, it had extraordinary impact upon uh, American culture at that time. Even, and and like I said, then she continued to have uh, a profound influence. Tell us about her husband, Jim Elliott. Jim was a young man in his 20s who went to Ecuador as a missionary with a co-worker. He was he had grown up in the Plymouth Brethren denomination. And so they were Plymouth Brethren missionaries, so they were kind of independent. They didn't have like an overseeing um, missions body, but they were working in rural Ecuador with the Quechua people doing Bible translation and running a school and, and things of that nature prior to than his interest in trying to reach this previously uncontacted people group, the Weirani. The thing that is interesting about both of them, I mean, their story is is fascinating, but they also were exceptional writers, both of them. They both kept journals, uh, which I guess for a biographer and a historian such as yourself, that's just a godsend, I guess. Yes. <laughs> so, So how did you become interested in writing about her? Um, well, my mother put her book, Passion and Purity, in my Easter basket one year when I was in high school, um, which was my introduction to Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, and then I went on and read uh, a few other of her books that my mother had on her shelves. And I was really impressed by her novel, Elliot's novel, No Graven Image. And so um, several years later, when I was working on uh, writing a, a textbook um, featuring American Christian writers, I knew I wanted to include No Graven Image among the reading selections that the students would work on. And so I set out to collect several biographies of her to write a little mini biography, as I did for each author in the book, and discovered that there weren't any full-length biographies of her in existence. And so I had to approach source material in order to complete that project, knowing that that gap was there was what led to my interest in, in writing this book. That's quite remarkable that, that that up to this time, there's not been a full biography about her, especially whenever you consider, I mean, she's been a, almost a larger than life figure in yes. evangelicalism in the last half of the 20th century, especially yes. uh, in the in the books that she's read, uh, the, the, the story. And as you mentioned, uh, she, she was a very well-known public speaker. I remember her radio broadcasts. I guess they're still available as podcasts. Um, So people have strong opinions about Elizabeth Elliot, which is not surprising. She was a, she was a strong figure. What I like about your book is it's not hagiography. Uh, It's, it's, it's uh, what what we have is a very real person. Some do try to present her as a saint. Others almost paint her as a villain. How did you see her? How do you see her? Well, I see her, I I do see her as a saint in the sense that I think scripture claims that for everybody who's trying to walk with Jesus. But I think in the sense that you're asking this question, I see her as a complex, multifaceted, whole person. She doesn't fit neatly in any particular box. She was different at different times in her life. Sometimes she held contradictory Um, opinions or positions at the same time. Sometimes she was right and sometimes she was wrong. Sometimes she did, you know, did things poorly and sometimes she did things well. And Walt Whitman says, I contain multitudes 
I think that that's the human condition, um, and it's true of her. And in Romans 4, Abraham, that says Abraham did not waver in unbelief uh, regarding the promises of God. But if you read Genesis, Abraham, you know, sold, sold his wife into concubinage multiple times to save his own skin and uh, slept with his slave to produce an heir outside the promise. And he certainly looks like he wavered. And so I think that the way that you can see him as, as not having wavered in unbelief is to look at his whole, the timeline of his life as, as a unit, as a complete thing, all of it existing at once. I think that's a great uh, analogy and a great way of putting it. We mentioned about um, some elevate Elizabeth Elliot to sainthood almost in the in the Roman Catholic sense of the word. One who really does seem to be elevated in that way. And one of the reasons is, is because his life was cut short so early. And that's Jim Elliot. I mean, I, I can't think of how many times in sermons I myself have quoted some of his statements. You know, he who is, is no fool who gives up but he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I mean, that's the famous quote uh, that everybody says. And and then and, and um, he gives his life as a martyr for the Christian faith. And so we have a tendency to put him on a pedestal. And yet what comes through in your book is someone who's very real and flesh and blood, who loves God, who is serious about seeking God's first, but he has he has certain struggles, particularly trying to figure out God's will about marrying Elizabeth or when they should marry. Before the podcast, we did send out a request to our listeners asking them if they had questions that they wanted asked. And one of them uh, was this, how does the book approach increasing questions about Jim Elliott's demeanor and behavior towards Elizabeth? during their courtship? What are the potential reasons for that? Uh, in, in your book, you suggest that their courtship was a bit of a roller coaster. So uh, tell us about that. Well, if I'm understanding the question correctly, the book approaches kind of the increased scrutiny of their relationship by looking carefully at the available source material. So that's their letters to each other, their journals, um, her books, which are heavily autobiographical, interviews with people who knew them during that time in their lives and and starts by just trying to piece together what happened. And once there's a timeline of events, then you can you can kind of see patterns start to emerge, like the way that what seemed to Elizabeth like deepening levels of commitment from Jim coincided with times that they were together and he was kind of caught up in the the heat of the moment. And then what looked like him putting on the brakes or or giving a red light, that would occur after they'd been apart for a while and he'd had a chance to calm down. And so when you put that pattern together with other clues, you know, she was an introvert and an internal processor. He was an extrovert and an external processor. Um, his family said whatever they thought and hashed things out aloud and changed their minds in the course of conversation. Her family culture was more emotionally reserved, um, and they maybe said things more by implication and waited to share their opinions until they were settled in them. Um, so you can start to see some of the reasons for the roller coaster, uh, as you describe it. Elizabeth's brother, Dave, said that, you know, Jim played her like a yo-yo up and down. Um, 
and and I think it's important to to look at that story both because it it was several years of Elizabeth's life. So in telling her life story, it obviously had a great effect on her life during that time and her life going forward. And also Passion and Purity, which is the book that she wrote telling the story of that time kind of as a springboard for the the older adult Elizabeth's views on how unmarried Christians should behave toward romantic relationships. That was probably her second best-selling book uh, of all the many books she wrote. It was very popular, uh, and it has had a big effect on on evangelical American culture. And so um, looking at what really happened and what some of the the reasons for that way things happened uh, might have been seems like it's important in telling that story accurately. So, so speaking of telling the story accurately, you you tell about how she does arrive at the field in Ecuador. She's this is still before Jim and she marries. Um, there is this maturing process that she undergoes. Much of it quite honestly, traumatic to read. I could only imagine what it was like to experience the the woman who dies in childbirth. Her uh, helper uh, was murdered. And if I understand what what you've written, uh, she actually wrote some things and then burned it later. What do you think was going on there? What's happening? Uh, Is she is she going through the dark night of the soul? What's happening? Well, as far as why she later burned her letters from the field, her letters home to her parents, I think there's nothing that I've found in the record to suggest why she did that. To destroy the letters and also to leave a note that she destroyed the letters is a puzzling thing to do. And it's open to speculation, um, but there's no clear direction as to which direction maybe to speculate in. Um, And the book explores that a little bit. But I do think, I mean, she later described that time period as kind of the first stripping away of some beliefs about faith in God that she had grown up with, that she later came to believe weren't true, about how God responds to us based on our behavior and whether we can whether we can put in the right set of behavior and get out uh, the circumstances that we're hoping for. Yeah, I think that she would be the first to push back against any kind of prosperity gospel, but she there was some thinking at that time that if I if I check all the boxes correctly, the result will be God's blessings upon me and my ministry. And she found out in a very tough way that that's not necessarily what happens. Speaking of the theological perspective that she had to deal with and, and kind of grow out of, Jim Elliott uh, and both both Elizabeth and Jim uh, had a background in the holiness movement that was during that time. I'm not sure our our listener to listeners today would be very familiar with that movement, the holiness movement, the Keswick movement. There's a lot of wonderful things uh, that have that came out of that movement, and you one cannot help but admire their zeal to obey God no matter what. What was that movement, and how did it in, impact them? So the holiness movement originated in the U.S. And then it moved over to Great Britain 
uh, where it's probably best known because of Amy Carmichael and some other some other well-known uh, adherents like that. And then uh, it took off again so much in Great Britain that it migrated back to the U.S., uh, at which point Elizabeth Elliot's family got involved with it. Other people are much greater scholars of the movement than I am, but I would characterize it as um, the idea that the whole person inside and out can be transformed in obedience to God and that the believer doesn't need to lead a life of trying and failing and asking forgiveness and trying again and failing again, but can can lead a life of ever-increasing holiness, submitting their whole, whole being, uh, not only their outward behavior, but their inner self to God and being transformed into his likeness. Yes, uh, the idea that one can completely die to self and experience uh, limitless joy uh, and and victory uh, in the Christian life, and one can know God's will in such an intimate and direct way to where they responded to impressions and and determined God's will by whether or not they felt uh, what they called the peace of God. Yes. Um, I, it comes through in your book that that's affecting Jim's approach to his courtship with Elizabeth and his decisions Very about strong. missions. And, and how did how did that affect how how they related to each other? Well, they were both trying to discern the will of God, uh, you know, beyond the explicit will that's stated in Scripture. So the will of God for the individual decisions of their lives, not just career choices and choice of a mate and so on, but uh, extracurricular activities and uh, and down to pretty detailed things, you know, where should I go on vacation and uh, how should I spend this money and and those kinds of things. Full disclosure here, I was taught that as a young Christian myself, and so much to the point that I would pray and ask God, I'm not kidding, which socks to wear, you know, yep. And, and, you know, and I would try to go by the impression uh, and, and my wife would tell you very quickly that I don't have a clue as to what, to, what kind of clothes to, to wear. And obviously the Holy Spirit didn't help me there as much as she would like for, uh, for me to have been helped. Moving on from there, uh, let's go back to Elizabeth and her ability. She was a remarkably gifted person. Uh, she seems to have amazing intellectual gifts, uh, linguistics. Tell us, you know, how does she stand out as a Christian woman at this time in American culture? What would you say is unique about her in, in the exercising of these gifts? Well, I think to a large extent, what's unique about her, I mean, she was intellectually gifted. Uh, she was a talented linguist and a talented writer who worked hard to, you know, in, improve in both of those areas. But I think a lot of the reason that we know her name rather than than other people's is that the way that that story of the death of the five men captured public attention, because there's never been a shortage of intellectually gifted Christian women. You know, to take just one other example, Elizabeth Elliot's closest friend for many years, Eleanor Vandevoort, she was a fellow Greek major um, with Elizabeth. She graduated a year after her. And she spent a decade in the Sudan, mm. during which she wrote a pedagogical grammar and translated 11 books of the Bible, both Old and New Testament. 
into the newer language. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, which Eugene Nida called the most difficult language in the world. And most people have never heard of her, but she was, you know, if anything, she was she was certainly Elizabeth Elliot's intellectual equal. She may well have, have surpassed her um, in as far as gifts in that area. And so, yeah, so, I mean, she was she was very gifted. Elliot was very gifted um, and worked very hard to, uh, to use her gifts well, but she certainly wasn't alone in that. She had um, the tragic uh, situation with her, with the death of her first husband. And as you point out, she then returns to the United States her story is difficult in some ways. For example, she and Rachel Saint work together among the indigenous people there, the very ones that had taken the lives of their loved ones. But that didn't work out long term. Talk to us about the relationship between Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot. Well, I'm smiling because when you say they worked together, I'm not sure you can ever really use that phrase to describe what they did. <laughs> Because there are, I don't have the numbers right right at my fingertips. The book discusses this in more detail, but of the uh, roughly three years that they were both nominally living together with the Weirani, they were only both in the settlement at the same time for months out of those three years because they just could not work together. They could barely live together. So, uh, and that was, that was with separate houses. They were in separate houses in the settlement. So they had very similar backgrounds in many ways. They had grown up geographically very close to each other. They were both from that holiness background. They had gone to the same summer camp uh, for years. Um, they both, you know, were passionate about missions and the Lord. And the book explores this, but they had very different uh, approaches to the intellect and to understanding and applying scripture. And Elizabeth Elliot felt like they could live and work together because they agreed on the essentials, even though they disagreed on secondary and, and secondary things. But um, Rachel Saint felt like the things that Elizabeth Elliot felt like were secondary things were really primary things. Two of the most prayed for women in the world at that time, and they just could not iron it out. So, Can I confess that I almost find a little bit of encouragement from that, showing that the Lord still can work through some very flawed and complex uh, human beings. Speaking of flawed and complex, uh, another, another listener wrote in a question and she asked this, she said, I was startled and saddened for her by the challenges of her second and third marriages to men who, who even seem cruel at times. She said, I'd love to hear how and if uh, this should give us pause, uh, you know, in terms of the male-female relationship advice she championed in her later years. Uh, how do you respond to that? I hope it does give us pause. Certainly God doesn't promise us or owe us a rose garden for obedience and things being hard is not a sign that we're doing something wrong. Jesus suffered in his perfect obedience, but on a level of caring about human beings, I think we should be slowed down by each other's suffering. And, um, and I've seen several people announce recently that they've come to different positions on the roles of the sexes after careful study 
Um, and a repeated theme in their stories is that for decades, they just assumed that their original position was right. Um, they'd been told it was the orthodox position, and they had assumed scripture supported it. And then when they actually got around to looking into it, they changed their minds. And and I find it really sad um, that we're holding positions that have this kind of weight in people's lives without looking into them carefully. So I hope that seeing Elizabeth Elliot's life in more detail will help people see the gravitas of the situation, um, that our position on these issues isn't just a theoretical discussion or a, an interesting armchair conversation, that it it's people's lives, their one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver says, mm. and that it merits careful examination in the light of the whole teaching of scripture. Lucy, this season at the Bush Center, we're focusing on challenges to humanity. And one of those challenges is mental health. What can Elizabeth Elliot's response to adversity and suffering teach us? Well, I'm certainly not a mental health expert, but I think that the record shows that Elizabeth Elliot started out with an attitude towards suffering that was influenced by her culture, maybe by her personality. Uh, toward a kind of baptized stoicism and a real sense that uh, in the old holiness slogan of the day that she had to overcome adversity, not just somehow, but triumphantly. And, and over time, I think she started to see and understand more of the love of God for us and the presence of God with us. And um, as she later said, to see that no matter how big the storm that we're in, that Jesus is in the boat with us. And so I think maybe one thing, you know, there's not a one size fits all answer to how to respond to suffering, but that maybe one thing that can be helpful is to, to learn to be compassionate towards ourselves and to others, knowing, um, knowing that scripture says that God is compassionate towards us, uh, like a mother toward her nursing baby. You know, as I read your book, what comes through to me is that you may not agree with Elizabeth Elliot on everything that she taught are held to, but your affection for her comes through. So thank you for writing such an effective work. Where where can our listeners uh, buy this book? I think the line is anywhere books are sold. Um, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Lifeway, Christian Book Distributor, Crossway.org, probably other places. Lucy, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where our guests tell us what they're reading now. So, Lucy, what's on your bookshelf right now? I'm about halfway through James K.A. Smith's book, How to Inhabit Time, um, and I'm, I'm appreciating it. It's tying in helpfully to my thinking about life writing and how we understand the ever-changing self, uh, our self is always slipping through our fingers uh, and how we can live in the face of that mutability. And I'm in a summer reading book club with my mother and sister, and we're working our way through golden age detective stories. So I've just finished Mary Roberts Reinhardt's The Man in Lower Ten, and I'm about to start her book, The Circular Staircase. 
I always love a good detective story and anything that Jamie Smith writes I is is profitable. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, how can people follow your work? As far as social media goes, I'm most active on Twitter at Lucy SR Austin. I'm on Facebook at Lucy SR Austin writer on Substack under the people search as Lucy S period space R period space Austin. And I have a website at Lucy SR Austin.com. Excellent. Thanks for listening to the Christ and Culture podcast. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating and a brief review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.